This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today we're going to have another conversation about South Carolina and the new nation, 1783 to 1820. And this conversation was recorded at the University of South Carolina before a live audience. My guest is Dr. Larry Watson, who is chair of the Department of History and Political Science at South Carolina State University. And we're going to talk about the impact on the state of the reopening of the slave trade, the expansion of the cotton kingdom, and what that meant for the population and the people of South Carolina. South Carolina, as you all know, in the colonial period was a black majority colony. By the time you get to the American Revolution, it's about a two-to-one population, but it, in the low country, it's even greater than that. In the Georgetown area, the Buford area, it's sometimes eight or nine to one, and those are the same population statistics you find in the West Indies. And we often talk about the Caribbean connection of Carolina, which is a very real thing, but literally the demography of even the Port of Charleston was similar to those of places in Barbados and Jamaica, which we often forget. There were 100,000 African-Americans in actually 104,000, almost 60% of the population. Great changes happened during the revolution. Larry, do you want to say anything about that? I do. Um, going into the revolutionary era, uh, South Carolina it was, a, was a black majority colony, um, and that was the case right into the revolution. Of course, when the British left, uh, they extracted about 20-plus thousand slaves and took with them, uh, which, uh, well, that stopped the growth of the black population, for one thing, but it, but it also um, was part of the period in which the white population in the back country also in, in, increased tremendously, so that between about 1790 and about 1920, uh, South Carolina had a white majority. And, uh, and, and that became uh, uh, an issue of tremendous concern for, uh, for bad country people because they were disfranchised for the most part in terms of their political power, which we, we can talk a little bit more about that later. But, but I want to preface by saying there are a couple of trends I'd like to just kind of address. One is, is uh, the, the impact of this black population on, on South Carolina politics in particular. And, and also there were some national implications of that too. Uh, because the leadership in South Carolina in the um, in the in, during the Revolutionary Era were primarily uh, people who had a vested interest in slavery, and they took that interest to Philadelphia, and it manifested itself in the United States Constitution, uh, the Three Fifths Compromise, the Fugitive Slave uh, uh, Provision, even the uh, decision to um, to end the slave trade in 1808 uh, were all issues that um, the South Carolina had vested interest in, and they made that very very clear. Uh, I know Henry Lawrence was, was one. The delegates who didn't go, but but those who went uh, in the Pinkness, they, they their influence was pretty pretty evident. The whole situation with this black population uh, also uh, gave an additional meaning to the low country up country conflict too, because uh, I, I think in your text you mentioned the fact that the. Uh, the low country had them and the back country wanted them. And so there was some interest in that. But uh, this created a certain uh, political, social, economic situation in South Carolina that really manifested itself right after the Civil War and maybe uh, is the strong influence in the Civil War itself because South Carolina eventually became the voice of the South. So, so that population uh, is, is a major factor. And, and I want to just kind of talk about the fact that that once the, the black population became a majority after about 1820, uh, it never relinquished that position until the, until the, the, the next century. And that would be due to the tremendous out-migration that took place uh, after, after about 1800. But the issue of, um, of uh, slave regulation, the issue of the importance of, of slave labor to cotton, uh, the, the, uh, the whole issue of nullification, uh, all of these are issues that are somehow associated with the fact that South Carolina has black population that, that is its primary source of wealth and its primary source of labor. One of the demographics that I just wanted to, to toss in is that during the revolution between 1775 and 1783, 25,000 of those 104,000 black Carolinians disappeared. Some joined the British. In fact, there was a black 
British Dragoon Regiment that ended up, they were granted their freedom, they ended up going to the Caribbean after the revolution, to Jamaica. And one of those things you can toss out at a cocktail party, their regimental air, all British regiments have to have a regimental air, it was Carolina in a sultry climb. Some were were taken as property because if you're in the English Army, the only way you can get promoted is to buy your promotion. So they, they took slaves with them. A number were killed. And then some left with the British occupation, primarily going to uh, the Bahamas. If you go to the Bahamas today, ladies and gentlemen, and you look at the names of the white population, the black population, you can scratch the surface and find a South Carolinian, somebody who's descended from South Carolina. But then Larry pointed out by 1820, South Carolina was a black majority. Now that happened very quickly because believe it or not, in 1783 and from then until 1803, the state of South Carolina forbid the importation of slaves. Now just wrap your hands around that for a minute. There are a couple of reasons for that, Larry. You want to? Well, one is one is security. Uh, the the whole issue of, of this black population was a security issue. Uh, there's also the fact that uh, uh, additional slave would devalue the one that you had. Uh, there, there was a tremendous amount of revolutionary sentiment, too, in South Carolina, though it did not manifest itself in any major abolitionist movement, but, but there were people in South Carolina who, who saw that slaves were becoming less and less profitable. This is pre-cotton gin. Uh, uh, the primary money crops now are just the last of the indigo and rice, and so there was some concern about that. Um, but uh, the, 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 the black population in South Carolina was a relatively poorly regulated uh, a group. Uh, if you look at the grand jury presentments from uh, the 1730s right up into the, uh, the 1800s, you see a tremendous amount of concern on part of South Carolinians on this issue of uh, control. The grand jury, incidentally, with this uh, uh, this body that was charged with being watched all on society and to make the, the uh, law enforcement people aware, and legislators, whoever they were, make them aware of what those, uh, those issues were and, and do something about them. So they were presented by the grand jury and they were called grievances, and they all spoke to various issues of society. Now, I'm only dealing with the one that's dealing with the black population, but um, there are several hundred of these, and they deal with all aspects of society. But look, at, check, take, t- take, for example, this particular one. And, uh, and I, I like this particular one because it takes us out of Charleston. Uh, for the most part, we're during the pre-revolutionary period, the course made in Charleston, and we tend to think everything was in the low country. But after we create these additional districts, then we had courts in outland districts, and they too had grand juries. Now here's one that's a 1799, for instance. This is Georgetown, so this be Georgetown district. Okay. This is north of Charleston, which is a black majority district. So we present another grievance, the last concourse of Negroes and other slaves to come to Georgetown on the Sabbath from the neighboring plantations. Under pretense of coming to places of worship, but are frequently guilty of riotous disorder behavior in the streets of the said town, occasioned by their getting intoxicated at dram shops to the great annoyance of the well-disposed and peaceful inhabitants of the said town. Now, there are a lot of these. Now, this is the 1790s, and there, uh, there's some other thing going on internationally at this time. We're in the period of the, uh, the Haitian Revolution, and uh, uh, Carolinians are concerned that uh, that, that sentiment uh, even the sentiment of the French Revolution may creep into a slave population. And so we'll see uh, the restriction on, immigrate, on importation that would not only gear with con- controlling the local population, but also making certain that they did not come in contact with the revolutionary ideals that might lead to uprisings, uh, of which we know their uh, Haitian, of course, was a successful re- revolution, but there would be some, some slave uprisings in uh, the early national period, Prosser in Virginia, and of course in the early, in our time frame, we'll get Denmark Vesey. And so the concern was that this population, which is, though in a minority when this particular grand jury presentment was given, is a significant population, and in certain areas, as as Dr. Eggers indicated, uh, they win a majority. It's only in the back countries you don't see that but from Beaufort to Charleston uh, to Georgetown and certain distance inland, you're talking about a, a black majority for the most part. And 
Yes, the concern about the black majority, in the, in, certainly in the, in the low country and the French Revolution, um, there were backcountry folk, white folk, who were wearing revolutionary cockades in their hats. Now, how, you think, how did that information, that tricolor ribbon get to the backcountry? Folks, it did. And that concerned the white minority in the low country. There was that fear, which is one reason in 1787 that they banned the external slave trade. Another was economic. I mentioned that 20, those 25,000 slaves who the labor force vanished. Well, guess what? As soon as the revolution was over, the war was over in 1783, all those rice planters just said, we got to replace every, that labor force all at one time. They went head over heels into debt to English merchants. And then there was an economic collapse, and there were foreclosures everywhere. So they said, we've got to keep this temptation away from us. Right. Now, cotton's beginning to go to the back country. They want to have a slave labor force. If the low country, which controls the General Assembly, closes the external slave trade, guess where they can sell any excess slave property? at a higher price to the cotton farmers in the back country. The external slave trade, that means slaves coming directly from Africa, was closed in South Carolina from 1787 to 1803. Now, as Larry pointed out in the Constitutional Convention, the slave trade was authorized until 1808, okay? Charles Cosworth Pinckney of South Carolina was a member of the committee that came up with that compromise on the importation of slaves. But what this meant in terms of demography is between 1803 and 1808, 40,000 enslaved Africans were imported through the city of Charleston in that five-year period. 40,000. And the site was Gadsden's Wharf. It's within spitting distance of the aquarium. So that is a huge number. It is. It truly is. And, 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 and that would feed into the, the majority population that we would get by the 1820 census, that, that population. But even if the, the uh, external slave trade is ended, uh, the, the, uh, the appetite for slave doesn't end there. Uh, now we would get into a domestic slavery, uh, domestic slave trade. So now you would see uh, South Carolinians in particular uh, purchasing uh, slaves from places like Virginia. Uh, because tobacco was wearing out there, and so, and, and that was always the concern uh, about bringing in uh, slaves from outside, uh, from other areas. I believe that uh, uh, throughout the uh, the colonial and early national period, uh, South Carolina paid tariffs on on, the, on the importation of slaves, and and early the early tariff was just strictly uh, just a monetary tariff. But later on, the tariff took on political implications, uh, one of which was prohibitive. It was designed, it would be placed so high that, it would, that you couldn't afford to pay it, so you couldn't afford to import uh, 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 new slaves. Um, of course, tariff always produced general revenue, but that wasn't the main issue at certain points. It was mainly to deter the uh, appetite of planners to rush back into the, into, uh, the slave uh, business. Uh, it doesn't work, however because once you can purchase slave on the domestic market, uh, it will feed into that, into that need. And I know we won't get beyond this period in this discussion, but, th but this problem becomes even greater in the 1830s and 40s when you have this tremendous out-migration of people from South Carolina to the New South, and they're taking slaves with them. So the, the uh, interesting thing about that is it, it sort of stagnates this pop the black population growth in the 1830s when it probably should have been larger, it's actually smaller as South Carolina moved west to New Virgin Land uh, to, uh, uh, to, to grow cotton. I'm glad so. you mentioned the domestic slave trade because while South Carolinians closed the slave trade from directly from West Africa, tobacco is declining in Virginia after the revolution. And so Virginia planters are selling their slaves to the lower south, but particularly first to South Carolina because that's they're declining at the same time cotton's taking off. See, it all goes back to economics. And the minstrel song that Stephen Foster wrote actually was, was literally 
taken a, a, from a slave's lament, carry me back to old Virginia. That was because the slaves had been sold south, sold south to South Carolina, and then, of course, later on, they moved west. The, the, the whole issue of, um, of the outmigration of slaves also affected white population as well. More than a few planters had, um, especially those men who had multiple sons, uh, might uh, fund that son to move to a western place. Wade Hampton wants to wind up with property, I believe, either in Louisiana, Mississippi, and he's not the only one. His son did, at least. But, but that, that, that's the Carolina influence. And I've always maintained that uh, part of the similarity between Mississippi and South, and South Carolina is uh, it come from this time frame. I, I actually believe that. I know Alabama also uh, has that influence. But uh, um, the, the, this also, I think, speaks to the influence of slavery on the South, in general, the, the slave code that was used, that was uh, the, the model slave code that exists in South Carolina, the, the 1740 Negro Act, uh, became the model for the whole South. Uh, it's comprehensive. It deals with almost every aspect of, uh, of the slave existence, from uh, from how many hours you can work him during the day, to how whether or not he should be clothed or not, to the kind of punishment he should get for doing certain things. And, and the punishment in the 1740 Act also is, is graduated, uh, so that uh, um, you get one punishment if you do if you make if you commit that offense one time, you get another punishment if you do it a second time. And I'm making a point here. You you get a, another punishment to do that same thing three times. You get another punishment to do that thing four times. You know it's what's going on here. Uh, that there is a tremendous amount of patience here in terms of not uh, executing a slave. And the idea behind that is is uh, dead slaves don't work very well. So you you need to, you need to keep them alive. And uh, and that was just for running away. Uh, and then there are there are gender specific punishment for men and women. Uh, an idea how specific they were. Uh, so South Carolina slave codes were were uh, were copied uh, at least certain parts of them were extracted by other states. So slavery in South Carolina, the system is extended westward as people copied the model because the model was reasonably well. And I, although I, I will confess that the model is from the West Indies, but uh, but it. South Carolina tweaked it and made it uh, uh, peculiar to their own uh, state. So, so slavery in this period, uh, the ideology of it, the whole, the whole uh, uh, conceptual framework of how it works is a South Carolina model for the most part. Interesting, not a Virginia model, but a South Carolina model. And that would be the model that would wind up in, uh, in the New South, in Mississippi, in Alabama, and places like that over time. The only problem with this law is that it was very, very loosely enforced. Um, and, and I suppose that loose enforcement is due to a couple of things. Is one is the practical, just just by just by couldn't enforce it, uh, you don't have the manpower to do it. And two, if you allow for a certain amount of, of freedom underneath the, the the bar of slavery, you you probably will encounter fewer resistance. Well, you know, Larry, the, the the transfer of the model, and there there are a couple of things you mentioned. I'd like to talk about a little bit more. First of all, the question on executing a slave, killing a slave. There were penalties for that, but not to the owner. Now just for example, if Fritz sitting there in the back row got into an altercation and I'm a, I'm a slave owner, any damage he does to my slave, he's got to pay me. Now conversely, that same slave, if I get irritated and whip him, even to death, there's no legal penalty. But I've also just lost a capital investment. They said, now understand the difference. I mean, if somebody does something to your property, they're injuring you, yours. But if you do it yourself, if you're stupid enough to do that, then that, that, is, that is your loss. It was, that's all written into the slave code. Yeah, the slave code. And, and, and it, it speaks to the, the whole idea of property. Uh, it is, uh, slaves are considered property, and a slave is my property, and what I do to my property, uh, is, it, the, the law doesn't really mind, but the external damage to my property is something that uh, I can punish one for. Uh, in the, between 1780, uh, between 1760 and 1800, uh, there, there are many cases you can extract from the, the Journal of the Commonwealth, from the General Court records of, of court cases in which uh, someone brought a suit against someone else 
for damage to their slave. There are cases where a person is charged with damaging someone's slave. And, and of course, there are the specific penalties for that. So there is the idea of being charged with that offense, and then this, the next stage of being tried for that, that, that uh, uh, offense. And then a decision is made, and let's assume in this case that the, that the decision is, is, is guilty, now there must be a penalty. So it's, it's the judicial system working as it should. Charges, trying, decision, and then punishment based on that. So we, we can look at the numbers and see, for discussion purposes, there are, there are 10 cases where someone was charged with killing a slave. And there were 10 trials that, that ensued, and there were five convictions. And then there would be uh, 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 three sentences of death for that. Now, the next part about this scenario is you have to carry out the sentence. And so we will see in some cases where the person would be pardoned, but there are at least a couple of cases where the person was actually executed for violating that law. Uh, it, the, the other issue about, about slave the property gets into the, the, the public venue, and that is what do you do about slaves who are a threat to the general welfare? Uh, John owns a slave. He is a troublesome slave. He, he, he runs away or he, he does something that causes some damage, and he is captured, called by the magistrate, brought back and put in jail, and subsequently found guilty, and he's executed. Out of the public treasury, there was a fund that was set aside to pay owners for slaves who were executed under slave law, another compensation of owners for loss of property. Uh, and so there, there are quite a, quite a few of those in the, in the records. Now there's the irony. If the state takes your property, yes executes your slave, as for example happened during the, the Vasey yes. Yes. Uh, conspiracy, mm. then the state owes you money. It's, a, it's as they like to say in reporting the news, it's a complicated story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's one that quite frankly people have never paid a lot of attention to. There's been the general picture uh, in the history books and of course the general picture certainly in the, in the movies but it was, it was a far more complicated story, particularly when you get down to, to the legal issues. Yes. And the other thing that happened with cotton, and I want to talk to you a little bit more about that, is in the rice culture in South Carolina, there was a very interesting um, management of slaves through the task system. The task system, system yeah. We didn't talk about this last week, but the task system developed in the rice planting areas where a slave was assigned a particular task for a day based upon his or her age and ability. And when that task was finished, if, if he finished it early, then the rest of the day was his. It was basically a, a rudimentary contract between the slave owner and the slave. And although not written into law, the strong tradition was, okay, you've got a particular slave who is always finishing early, well then you up the ante. Yes. That tended not to happen right. because it was a labor management mm -hmm. issue and it was an effort in a, certainly in a heavily black majority area to keep the enslaved labor force as happy, <laughs> as, happy right. as possible. But that model didn't come with the cotton, to the cotton fields. No. No, the, the, uh, cotton it, it has a different kind of labor intensity. Rice is a slow process. Uh, you've got the flood and the reflood, and, and it's just it just takes more, uh, and, and it's very difficult to oversee rice production on a daily basis. But cotton, on the other hand, once you the, the, the land obviously has to be cleared, it's, the seeds have to be planted. The crop has to be thinned and nurtured, and then the the, uh, the cotton go through a growth period, and then they, during the hot months of the summer, of course, the bowls heat up and they pop open. You got this beautiful white cotton, and so it has to be picked in a relatively short time. And and the bowls don't all open at the same time. I'm not sure how many of you guys have picked cotton before, but but it's a it's a it's a it's a process, and you can pick a cotton field several times before it's finally exhausts itself. So you really need control of that process so that people will, will tend to the task of picking the cotton. It, cotton has to be picked and then it has to be ginned. 
the seeds make it useless uh, until you deseed it, which is why the cotton gene was so important to this process, because the cotton, the cotton gene literally stripped the seeds out of the fiber and made it easier to uh, uh, produce more uh, in terms of quantity. So cotton is, it needs this supervision where someone is constantly prodding the workers to, to maximize the amount of cotton that they pick. And, and so this becomes a, a, a more of a supervisory type job than, than rice, where you basically leave the enslaved person to himself and know that they will manage it on their own. So, so that, that's one of the problems with cotton. And, and you, you're producing these big fields, and, and labor is pretty much out of sight unless you are managing it. So you need overseers, you need drivers, uh, to to um, to oh, progeny. Let's explain what a driver is. A driver is typically uh, another slave, another black person who is, for various reasons, a personality or or good standing with the ma with the master, would be given the role of uh, ensuring that the other slaves are working in a more deliberate manner. Uh, overseers, of course, are overdrivers. Some some plantation didn't have overseers; they just had drivers. Uh, it's another level of uh, management, so to speak. Uh, so uh, the size of plantation would determine um, number and location might determine the type of drivers you have. Um, historically, uh, when you look at the WPA slave narratives, and uh, these are uh, the WPA slave narratives or actual interviews of former slaves uh, that were recorded in the um, late 1920s, early 1930s. And so these are people who were actually former slaves, and they were interviewed by, uh, by the WPA, and, and they asked them, um, uh, what were your experience like as a slave? There's a whole series of questions that they asked them in this, in this project. And one thing they asked them was about uh, their experience on plantations when it came to, to, to management. And almost consistently, when they talk about the slave drivers, they said that they were the worst ones. They were, they were very harsh. They were um, meaner than the white overseers in some cases. And now, this is, uh, there, there are variations to this, but, but the fact of the matter is, uh, quite a few of them um, had nothing really good to say about the slave drivers. Um, and not that they say anything good about the white overseers, but they definitely rarely ever say anything good about the slave drivers. Because they, I suppose, uh, um, I'm not a psychologist, but I suppose that from a psychological standpoint, a slave driver would argue that if I can make the slave work harder, then I look better in the eyes of the master, so therefore they tend to be harder. Well, and, and another thing, you, you mentioned the, the size of the plantation. By law, you were, you were not supposed to have a plantation without a white, an adult white male present. In the, in the low country, that was violated constantly because the ideal rice plantation size, although later there were larger ones, was about 30, you had about 30 slaves working a particular property. When you come to cotton, you have gang labor. You awaken to, you awaken to the bell, you go to the fields, there is a break at a certain time for more or less hoe cake and what have you. Literally, that's it, midday meal and water, and then you work till sunset. But during cotton picking season, you worked as long as you possibly could see. The, the, the funny thing about it is if you've seen the movie, uh, uh, what's this movie, Jane, Jane the, the Jango movies came out a couple years back. Uh, and and there's, a, a, there's a segment in there where the overseer is uh, um, complimenting one of his slaves uh, uh, for picking 500 pounds of cotton. Well, you know, that's not going to happen. <laughs> It's just not going to happen. You're not going to pick 500 pounds of cotton in a day's time. Uh, I, I, I would argue that uh, if you do 200, you're done extremely well, uh, more like 150 to 200 on a good day, because this is an intense thing of pulling the, uh, the cotton out of this bowl and, and tucking it in, a, in some kind of container and then having to do that all day. But uh, um, I find it interesting, you, you mentioned about the, uh, about the, uh, the, the overseer. Uh, one of the, uh, and this is 1794, this particular presentment, South Carolina law, I believe, required that you have at least one white person on a plantation for every 10 slaves, something like that. But here is a, here is a 1794 presentment that says, uh, we present other grievance that the law by having an overseer on each cellar plantation is not thoroughly attended to. 
Uh, another uh, recognition fact that in some of these uh, outlying areas, the slaves simply had no supervision and they simply supervised themselves. And I think that that created a certain level of autonomy that, uh, that we saw in the post-Civil War era where uh, many of the low country black community were used to govern themselves. And so they transferred that, lead that, that leadership skill themselves. Port Royal experiment come ready to my mind when I think about that. So uh, it, it simply, there simply was not enough people to go around to do this. And so you basically allow the slaves to manage themselves along the work got done and there was no disorder. That pretty much the way it was until there was a threat. And, and, and I guess now a good time to talk about, uh, about the demobesity threat, which really upset uh, the, the state tremendously. In a 35-year period, we, we, we're going to have uh, Gabriel Prosser in Virginia, and then we're going to have demobesity in South Carolina, and then we're going to have Nat Turner. This is a short time frame historically. People remember these, these uprisings, and it, it, it began to militarize the South, and the South became more closed down. Uh, when were these ideas coming from? How they slipping into this rank? And, and in some cases, the, these slaves we're talking about, they were, they were uh, invisible in, in at the, the free Negro, and then there are rumors all over the place. There's something in New Orleans. There, there are a, a couple of atrocities <coughs> where people get killed. And so it creates this, uh, this um, suspicion of outsideness that I think is still pretty common in the South. We tend to look at the outsiders with a skeptic eye. But uh, this, this, is, this is the threat to the cotton kingdom. And so it lacks it being in the colonial period with the enforcement of the Negro Act. You do see more rigidity in the, in the um, early antebellum period. So it, it gets harder as the abolition movement picks up. And so I think that's, that's um, that because the South became less and less at ease about this, this, this population that in South Carolina in particular was in a majority. Well, you, you mentioned people remembered these incidents like Vasey, yes. like Nat Turner. They always remembered Haiti. Yes. The white population remembered Haiti. I was, I was there. And part of that was because there were French refugees, white and black, mm -hmm. who came from Haiti to Charleston, mm -hmm. from Santo Domingo. Yes. And if you look at the rhetoric uh, in the antebellum period, you know, God forbid there be another Haiti. That was, that was what they were referring to. Uh, and the, the nascent abolitionist movement you mentioned, people forget that there was a very large Quaker population in South Carolina right. at one time. Right. And not just in Camden, right. but in Newberry, right. for example, I have one of the largest Quaker meetings in, in the South. And once the external slave trade was reopened in 1803, those folks pulled up stakes and moved to Ohio, southern Ohio, Indiana, Illinois. The late Tom Pope, who was the historian of Newberry, I used to say, he said, you know, we don't have really a connection with anybody who was president. I said, if you looked at those census data from Ohio, and he, would, I said, what, he said, what do you mean? I said, there were mill houses and Nixons in Newberry County that moved to Ohio. Mm -hmm. And guess where Richard Milhouse Nixon's forebears came from? <laughs> <laughs> so we can get a South Carolina connection to yeah. just about anything we yeah. want to do. Because <laughs> right. the, the Grimpikes are actually from down here. They're actually connected to political power in the state. Angela, uh, the, the two Grimke and Sarah Grimke, they're South Carolina. They've become primary abolitionists. You know, the, 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 uh, the whole issue with the Haitian Revolution, an example of uh, South Carolina concern with this outside ideology creeping in is the Seaman Act. The Seaman Act uh, required that, that ships that came in the harbor in Charleston that had uh, black sailors on them, that the sailors could not come ashore. Uh, or if they came ashore, even if the ship was in dock, this, the, the slaves were to be uh, in, uh, uh, either maintained on the, on the ship, could not leave the ship, or if they came ashore, they were put in jail. And they, and they would stay in jail during the entire time that the ship was in dock. And then they would, of course, they'd release them because ship captains need their hands on deck. So they would take them when they got ready to go. And that was to ensure that, that they didn't bring in any of the revolutionary ideas and yeah. spread them around the local black population. Well, th these were the Siemens Acts, which really violated treaties that yeah. the United States had. Yeah. But this is one of the reasons for the economic decline of Charleston is that British shipping 
and French shipping, because of the Siemens Acts, began to avoid Charleston. Because captains, if they had particularly talented crew, the bond, the chance mm -hmm. that that seaman might end up being sold into slavery, which did happen, mm -hmm. they somehow managed to, once they were in the jail, they never got allowed to get back exactly. on the ship and they exactly. were sold into slavery in, in, in South Carolina. So they began to go elsewhere. Other southern ports didn't have the, that draconian no. Uh, no. measure. But this fear of the outside, Larry, it was in some paper that you did, and that, that was a while back when you were in my seminar. But you were talking about some merchant unpacked some china that had come in from New York, and the teacups had been wrapped in abolitionist newspapers. Newspapers. Yeah. <laughs> and this got everybody really upset yeah. because guess who was unwrapping the, the teacups? The slaves. <laughs> the slaves. Yeah. So. Well, it actually, uh, it, it, it was illegal to teach a slave to read and write. That was the case. But, um, but there was an underground process where some of them learned that. Not much very as, as to um, how widespread that was, but certainly some of them could, uh, Demovisa could read. And, and there were, and free, the free Negro population, another group we haven't talked a lot about, the free Negro population, which is only about 1800 during the first census, but by the time we get there to the Civil War, it's about, uh, about nine, almost 10,000 in, in South Carolina. They, they, had, um, they had schools. Uh, they had ways in which they uh, uh, provided some education to themselves. Uh, they had uh, mutual benefit societies. Uh, interesting, they had literary society. And you, you, you gotta have, you gotta be to read to be a member of a literary society. So, so that, now are these things sanctioned? No. Uh, after after Demogbisi's uprising, then uh, the state sort of clamped down on those schools, shut down some of them, shut down some of the churches that were involved in it too. But uh, but that didn't that didn't suppress it. it didn't it didn't it didn't extinguish it. They still existed. So that by the time we get to the uh, the Civil War and beyond, there are the significantly large number of free African Americans in, in South Carolina who are very very well who you know can read and write very well, and and they would be the seed of that uh, of that of this, that that next generation. So yeah, illegally yes, uh, but but it was happening because you 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 can't you can't stamp something like that out even if you force it to become you know more more discreet. You just can't do it. Well, again, the remembrance because. The state made it increasingly difficult. We talked about a slave being property. And it was not uncommon, certainly in the colonial period and even right after the revolution, that an owner would outright manumit or free a slave while he was alive. More frequently, it was in a will. But then the state began to forbid that. Yes. And so you've got a state that, where property is important they're telling you what you can and cannot do with your property. Right. Okay? Remember, this is a conservative state, but they're telling someone what you can and cannot do with your property. So white South Carolinians who wanted to do, they began to get around the law. Somebody would be technically a slave, but they would be assigned a, a guardian. A guardian. So the free people of color in Charleston, that community really began to grow until, as you mentioned, then there was concern about it. And by 1850, if you were a free person of color and you left South Carolina, you could not come back home. And a couple, at least one good example of that is, is Jehu Jones from Charleston. He, uh, he was a, um, the free Negro, free black, uh, who, who actually purchased his freedom was a tailor, I believe. He was a tailor. He worked, uh, and his owner allowed him to uh, to keep part of his earnings, and eventually he uh, accumulated, and I, I, I can see this number in my mind, it, it, 100 pounds sterling, and he bought himself from his owner. And, and, and as a result of that, he was able to keep all of his earnings. He, he wound up with several pieces of property in Charleston. Um, um, he had a house. Um, and some rental property, uh, had some property over Mount Pleasant. He uh, um, eventually wound up with a couple of slaves of his own because uh, he was a black slave owner eventually. Um, he, um, his, his wife, um, who had been married to a previous, had been in a previous relationship, had a daughter. And the daughter went to uh, New York. 
And so naturally, the mother went to visit the daughter in New York. And under the provision of the law, that, like that we just made reference to, uh, she couldn't come back because the daughter couldn't come back. And so Jehu John wanted to see his wife. So he petitioned the state to allow him to go to New York, visit his wife, and come back. They weren't coming back, but he wanted to come back himself because he has property, he has some means down here. Uh, he, in order to do this, he, uh, he went to his guardian. Uh, I, I, I won't try to think of the name, but offhand. his guardian then uh, got the signatures of some of those prominent men in the legislature to, uh, to vouch for him and even the governor, and so they agreed to allow Jones to go to New York, visit with his wife, and come back. And he was one of those free, uh, free African-Americans in lower country, in, in Charleston, and he was part of a, of a developing black uh, middle class of Charleston, so-called Brown Fellow Society. He was a member of that group. So, 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 so blacks did have guardians, and, and, and the law required that all free Negroes have to have guardians. And so you didn't go to authority on your own. You need someone to vouch for you. Another interesting thing, and, I, and I, I, just, I, I have this somewhere at my house. I don't know where it is, but I was at one of these great little shops that exist in Charleston, and I found uh, a Negro badge, free Negro badge. It's a little small thing, about that big. It got a little hole in it. You can put a piece of leather through it and you wear it around your neck. It's number 23 to think about it. And uh, they, free Negroes have to have papers on them all the time. Uh, well, they should have them on them all the time. And uh, the papers would, uh, would uh, uh, be a physical description of what they look like. Because uh, as I tell my students, if a guy that's six feet nine walks with me and beat me up and take my papers, he's probably going to get them. <laughs> so the only thing that's going to save me is that someone who sees him with my paper look at the description on the paper and look at him, and they say, oh, this can't be Watson because this guy's six feet nine. So, 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 so they, these records were kept at the courthouse as well. So you need a guardian because if you ever find yourself in a situation, someone's got to take up that responsibility to, to vouch for you. Uh, this part of the existence of the free Negro population that became more and more difficult as we moved into the late antebellum period and the abolitionist movement began to take on more fervor, it just become more and more of an issue. John o. Franklin called them quasi-free Negroes. He said they're, they're not really free, but they're not slaves, and so their condition just slightly better than a slave, and yet it's not as good as being free, and that's where they were. This is it's an interesting group that, that developed in South Carolina, but also in the South. Uh, the majority of all free Negroes on the antebellum period lived in the South. Uh, on the eve of the Civil War, there were almost 500,000 free Negroes in the United States. 500,000. And 237,000 of those free Negroes lived in the North, which meant that the majority of them lived in the South. Virginia had the largest population, I believe, and South Carolina population is probably third or fourth. Louisiana had the largest free Negro population. And they're in the South, and they're, they're, they're interspersed in the community, but mostly they live in urban areas where they can find work. It is a complicated story. It's an yes. interesting story. And you, you had mentioned earlier that South Carolina became the model for the lower South. And in the period just that we're covering from the end of the revolution to 1820 in South Carolina, and this includes the entire state now, not just the low country. In 1800, 25% of the families in South Carolina were slave-owning slave families. Right. By 1820, it was 40% slave-owning yes. families. The difference is yes. cotton. 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 So, Larry, let's kind of wind up here, and then we'll take some questions from the audience. Any last comments you would like to make? Well, uh, given the nature of slavery in South Carolina, I, th I think John C. Calhoun probably spoke f for everyone when he when he um, when he wrote his uh, his South Carolina Exposition. It seems like that's a political track, and perhaps it is a political track. But it's based on the whole notion of, of slavery. Nullification sounds like it's, it sounds strictly as a state rights statement, but the state right, what undergirds state, states' rights for the South was the right to, to not have any more temporary slavery. So I, so I, I think that, that slavery, is, is, it defines the South, it defines South Carolina, and I, and I think it, it helps to define the South. And, uh, uh, 
so we can't understate the importance of slavery to this period because as this black population grew and dependency on on on, on slave labor grew, it covered all aspects of Southern society. Politically, economically, socially, uh, it was it was that it was that common denominator that made the South uh, what it was, and the South controls the government too. This, the interesting thing about this is that uh, the 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 whole issue of slavery gives the South disproportionate representation. Uh, the Three Fifth Compromise gave South Carolina one less congressman than New York had. Uh, because of the way it was formula. Uh, so I think I think we have to look at, at that in, in, in that particular sense. And people do get rich off of slavery. Wade Hampton got extremely rich off of slavery. Uh, and so um, it, it, is, it is the South, and I think it defines it. Well, the Reverend James H. Thornwell, one of the most noted Presbyterian divines of the 19th century from South Carolina, said slavery has an impact on every fiber of Southern society. So I think we'll stop there and take some questions from the floor. Yes, the question sort of goes to the average cost of a slave, and I'm sure that it differed with yeah. their age and yeah. gender and sure. so on and so forth. Uh, but it actually goes, the question goes broader. What, uh, what, how much of a portfolio would a, uh, a slave owner want to put into buying slaves? Good question. Uh, just to get some feedback. Okay, on that. sure. Uh, now, uh, the, the value of a slave varied with the market. Uh, in in uh, 1800, for instance, a prime field hand, and, and a, a prime field hand is a young male, unskilled, about 20 ish age wise. And, and, and you also have different slave markets, too. You've got the Charleston market, you have the New Orleans market, you've got a Memphis market, a Mobile market, a uh, Virginia market. So you've got different markets. And price that fluctuated at various markets. But let's just take Charleston, for instance. In 1800, a prime field hand sold for about $500. Uh, the cotton market goes up and down. There's a slight, uh, we're talking about the depression, there's a slight uh, fluctuation in the market, so that a prime field hand sold for about $550, about in 1820. But then, when, and that's pretty much the end of the first cotton boom. And then in the 30s, when cotton takes off again, the price of a, of a prime field hand goes up again. So that by 1860, in Charleston, a prime field hand will cost you $1,200. Yeah. But, but, in New Orleans, a prime field hand will cost you $1,800. And so it depends on the market, and, and, and that's why it's hard to just say that there's a given rate. But you have to look at specific markets and specific times. Now, uh, I, I've t I always like for my students to, to think uh, about something other than what I tell them, because I want them to be critical thinkers. So if you are... Uh, if you were a slave owner in South Carolina, and by the time we get to 1860, I think about well, 55% of South Carolinians own slaves. So if you are a South Carolinian in 1860 and you have 100 slaves, and the average cost of that slave is, 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 um, is let's say, $1,000 cost, because a field hand is $1,200, but then a skilled slave may be worth more yet, a house server may be worth less yet, but so I just gave you the prime field hand. So there's a there is some fluctuation in the price of a slave based on what his labor, what what his his his, his uh, work category is, how slave field hand skill slave. So there is some fluctuation. But if you are a South Carolinian and you've got a, a, a hundred prime field hands in 1860 prior to the war, and you multiply 100 times 1200, you get a number. And so that's that that's something. It's. Into the, as he said, it's very hard for the individual because if you have somebody who has a particular skill, like a carpenter, a yeah. bricklayer, they're not a field hand. No. They're going to be worth a lot more. But at the end of the war in 1865, and we're jumping out of our period, 1820, two-thirds of the capital wealth of South Carolina disappeared because slaves were freed. Absolutely. So two-thirds of the capital wealth of South Carolina before 1860 was invested in human property. How much was... $1,200 then. Oh, there, 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 are, there, are, there are ways to do that, ma'am. I can't do it. No, 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 there, there, is a, there are conversion yeah. tables. There, yeah, you can yeah. go on the Internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
And and actually, in my history, I did. You do, you do. I did, yeah, but yeah, I, that, those are 1996 yeah. values. Right. So that's. But yeah, there there are ways to, right. to do that. Right. I, I think Dr. Kirklana said last year, last mm -hmm. week, uh, think in terms of not, not a, a minivan, but a, a Chevrolet or a Ford, right. Right. about forty thousand uh -huh. dollars, something like that. Okay, the statistics. In the Senate, by the time you get to 1860, 36 out of 46 election districts are black majority districts mm -hmm. in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And in terms of members of the House, by the time you get to 1860, it's 93 to 31, right. 124, we still have them, uh, represented black majority right. districts. So and they were that, the richest districts in the state, too. That was, that's where the wealth was. Yeah. And, and those districts that were white majority, except for Oconee and Greenville counties, were very close to being black. Yeah. Places like York were very close to being black majority. Yes. Okay. Dr. Larry Watson, I want to thank you for thank being you. with us here tonight. And thank you all. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. The conversation with Larry Watson ranged pretty far and wide as we started off talking about the reopening of the slave trade in 1803 in South Carolina, and within the four years that it was legally reopened, the external slave trade, 40,000 human beings were brought to South Carolina in chains to become part of the labor force of the expanding Cotton Kingdom. It was interesting to watch the audience and listen to their questions because some of the comments that Dr. Watson made about the slave trade and about the demographics of the Cotton Kingdom really were a surprise to a fair number of folks. But that's what conversations on South Carolina history and Walter the Edgar's and opinions journal expressed are on all Walter about. Edgar's journal are not this necessarily is Walter Edgar. those of Join South me next Carolina week for more Public Radio of the journal.